podcast dedicated to the trends and topics facing higher education. My name is Roland Moe, and I am your host for this special series on Emergent Scholarship. Our series is seven parts, and is designed to provide a deep analysis on the conceptualization, generation, and dispersal of knowledge and its relationship to the academy, via the professoriate or the relationships between education and the community. The hope of this series is to highlight the progressive and congruent work happening in scholarship today, as well as signpost opportunities to support this production and dissemination. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Bonnie Stewart, Assistant Professor of Online Pedagogy and Workplace Education at the University of Windsor. Bonnie is one of the world's leading researchers on participatory networks and the relationship to teaching and learning. Foundational to her work is Ernest Boyer's practice and policy on reconsidering scholarship, and through her publications and presentations, Bonnie has advocated for a greater understanding of the public intellectual and how to recognize the new forms of this historical work. Bonnie and I had the opportunity to speak several months ago as part of a professional development series for Seattle Pacific University. And I would like to take this moment to preface by saying this and another interview in this series were not recorded with a podcast in mind. So please forgive any sound quality problems, but do enjoy this content. Dr. Stewart, I would like to start by asking you about your scholastic narrative. What brought you to this field? And how did your work both meet the historical expectations of academic practice as well as push against its traditions? I started, actually, outside of the scholarly focus on digital work. I started as a blogger in 2005. I was writing about life and identity. Um, I fell into a community of narrative bloggers who were writing about similar things. I discovered I didn't even really know they were out there. Yeah, I started at a time when participatory practices were really kind of peaking online and in the blogosphere. And so people found my blog and they would comment on my blog and I might click on that comment because often it was a, a relating of, oh, you've written about this. I think that's interesting. I'm this person and I might click over to their blog and find kind of ongoing narratives that would eventually over time build relationships with some of these people. I became part of a large and vibrant network of people who were using digital spaces to explore ideas and to build ties. And then a few years in, both Facebook and Twitter emerged. I began using both, began connecting not just with kind of people I'd gone to high school with, but also with some of the folks whom I knew from the blogosphere. My partner at the time was also doing work in education and in educational technologies and he had a podcast so interviewed people who were kind of online but in that educational blogosphere space I started to follow those people talk to those people and kind of became part of a network at the time when I was really at home with very small children had a master's degree worked as a sessional instructor I think adjunct is the term that you would use in the US at the university here and as a program director, but did not, what um, had not gone back to my own scholarship in a number of years. In 2010, I made the decision to go back and start my PhD. Had always been interested in the intersection of kind of knowledge and technologies of a given time. That was more or less what I had looked at in my master's 10 years before. And I looked around me at the kinds of conversations 
and networks that I was part of in the blogosphere and in sort of the educational technologies digital world, how those were shifting three or four years into Twitter, um, how they were shifting with the rise of monetization. And I thought, I'm really interested in this. My sense is that there are practices here that we are, those of us who engage are becoming acculturated to, but aren't necessarily able to articulate. Um, and so I set out to begin to look at those digital networked practices. Eventually, I narrowed my, my study, my, my dissertation study, to looking at scholarly digital practices. Um, as my community continued to shift, I started to find fellow grad students online, uh, leaders in my field, who, the people who wrote the books I was reading were the people I was able to access because I was on Twitter and had a reasonably sized network and knew a lot of people who could introduce me to these folks. And so I kind of was curious about specifically what was happening in scholarship. What I ended up studying was essentially academic Twitter as a loose collection of professionals tied to higher ed who, for the most part in my study, all had a foot in academia, but also had a foot in this other world, and examining the principles and practices that make that world run. One of the things I hear from faculty so frequently is, well, I love Boyer. I really like the idea of that, but Boyer doesn't get at peer review. I don't want scholarship to be the Wild West where I have a half-baked idea and I can take to a blog like it's the comment section at the New York Times. Your scholarship has related heavily to Boyer and the technocultural system regularly in, in your discussion and the opportunity for the commons to serve as, as a space on peer review. So when you are faced with people saying, I like the idea behind what you're saying, but in practice, rigor and peer review aren't addressed. How do you respond? Right. It depends on the context in which I think a person is saying, okay, there, there is, there's a rigor. I think our concepts of rigor need to be under examination, even in the historic practices that we've inherited. I am in support of the reasons behind peer review in the sense that they stand for making a piece of work open and public to a limited audience of peers with different knowledge sets so that you can try to ensure that your processes are legitimate, that you know there are not major oversights or issues. I see peer review as a very formalized version of the sober second thought and a way of making our work better. But I think it's important to look at peer review as a technocultural system as well. And so anything, any way that we engage with other people, we're always engaging with very particular when and on what timeline, very particular what's and in what format, kind of very particular for what's or who, who's the audience, why are we doing it this way? The peer review model developed primarily out of what was available in a pre-digital time, just as our whole academic publishing system was predicated on paper, on the cost of publishing, on timelines that involved actually sending manuscripts to people and having them reviewed and sent back and edited. All of those pieces that were built in out of necessity, to some extent, are still there sometimes and for certain types of work and knowledge. So for instance, if you're studying academic Twitter, just the very timelines of peer review and the full academic publishing system 
operate very differently than the phenomenon under study dissertation. I looked at academic Twitter practices and assumptions and kind of literacies um, during a window between 2013 and early 2014, just as things like tactical Twitter or um, hashtag activism were becoming popular and right before the advent of Gamergate, um, which very much changed the way that people engaged online. It didn't necessarily uh, kind of bleed into academic Twitter immediately, but we saw it even the summer of 2014 with the Stephen Salada case um, where you had a scholar was actually initially let go from a tenure track job that he had just been hired. He had let his tenure track position go to take a new one. And in the interim, a public audience, donors at the new university saw his public tweets on very touchy issue related to Israel and Palestine and made clear that they did not want him becoming faculty at this new university. So we started to see the real life consequences of people tactically using these publics, right? Where often when we speak as scholars, we are assuming that we're speaking to an academic audience or at least sort of a general public audience, but not necessarily a general public audience that is going to wield our speech against us in punitive ways. And so there was a real shift in Twitter in that window. So I think it's important to consider, yes, it's very important to have a body of peers your work and evaluate your work and consider whether there are alternate ways to do that. I think one of the fears that many of us as scholars have is that if we begin to look at dismantling or even sort of touching peer review and making it more digital, that we open it up to the tire fire of online comments model, right? That we are suddenly saying, oh, instead of our rigorous and thoughtful process, we will have this anonymous, nasty free-for-all. There's something interesting there that I'd like to pick at, which is that generally the premise of the review needs to be closed and anonymous in order to be rigorous does protect people who are giving input from the power consequences of reviewing. And that can be really important. It can be very important at times to be able to say, there is a problem with this piece of work without necessarily incurring personal risk. I'm not sure that that is totally functional in peer review. In a lot of peer review systems, people are not necessarily reviewing up they are reviewing people that they still might be able to give collegial, thoughtful feedback, but without some of the kind of blunt nastiness that anonymity can allow. We have watched in the last 20 years in society since newspapers started having online comments that anonymity does not necessarily breed better or kinder or even more thoughtful communications in people. And I've certainly seen in the anonymity of peer review and have heard plenty about it even beyond my own experience, oftentimes the anonymity does actually open people up to treat the other with whom they are communicating as if they are a person who does not need to be valued, as if they can simply be spoken at 
And there's a lot of dehumanization that happens in that. And some of the dehumanization that we see in online comments gets perpetuated in the process of peer review. And I don't think that's rigor at the same time. Not Again, not everything should be done necessarily openly, but I'm a fan of the model of opening up peer review, potentially keeping elements of the process open to some closed input, particularly if reviewers flag something. But I've been reviewed openly and closely. And for the most part, when people are trying to speak to you in a didactic way, as if you are, if we're reviewing somebody in a didactic way that is intended to make their writing better, there is no reason we cannot review people with, you know, names on a Google Doc doing that. And that would get rid of a lot of these sort of weird reviewer two stuff where you have people who get sent an article to review. It may be largely outside of their field. And so their feedback ends up being either completely missing the point or in the, well, you didn't read my article kind of piece. We, we can't pretend that peer review is a perfect system. I'm not sure we can even pretend that peer review is a truly functional system for building a field of practice that we want to be in as it is currently practiced. The principle behind it that we need to look at and contribute to each other's work to make it better, absolutely. But we, we can't just pretend that there are not people behind all of these practices. I, I'm of the mind that going online in name only, so just digitizing things, doesn't make sense. But if in taking advantage of what the digital makes possible, right, of some of the speed of communications, of some of the complexity and hyperlinking of communications, if you also then take advantage and build in to scholarly communications the human connection that is part of or possible within participatory digital practices, then you actually are contributing to positive direction for scholarship. Because scholarship is supposed to be founded on peer sharing and peer learning and communications of knowledge. I don't think we make knowledge better by fully dehumanizing it from the people communicating it. I don't see why we can't do good peer review in adapted, more open, more digital ways. Thinking about what Boyer called the hierarchy of functions, what you're talking about at the end of, of your conversation on peer review and what it means to be a, a, a digital self and what that affords us as well as kind of allows us to play out. I always think of this New Yorker cartoon of a man on a stage and the gentleman in the audience says, thanks, Dave, for that wonderful presentation on innovation. Now let's all vote to do things the same way. The manner in which we think about ourselves is often progressive, but the way in which we act about things is stagnant. Looking at the problems that we have in peer review and looking at what's out there, what would you propose as steps for us to recognize that uncomfortable in between that messy middle of this is tradition and we know it's broken, but I'm very afraid of the wild West that could come if we break down the walls. Uh, But I want to like, I would like to think of myself as the sort of person who would break down walls. What are some concrete things that we could do to further conversations? Have you seen anything work? Do you have any ideas on what might work? I have the privilege of traveling enough that I get to see different campuses doing pieces very well. And one of the pieces that I'm particularly fond of, and I think it may be related to what you're doing, is bringing people together to A, examine what they're already doing, um, and then talk about sort of concepts that they can use to inform the direction that they go in. Because as scholars, many of us tend to like 
concepts and need conceptual frameworks in order to think about what we do and our and and any changes that we might want to make. Um, one of the conceptual frameworks or concepts really that I'm most fond of um, that's key for me is the idea of knowledge abundance and the premise that we live in a time of knowledge abundance and it's not actually new and it's not inherently digital. There's a quote by Berlow from 1975 where he's talking about the idea of knowledge abundance and that it forces us to consider educating in new ways because no longer is it enough just to kind of know and memorize all the things, but rather we must know how to synthesize them. We must know what to do with them. I think that to some extent, as in the biggest picture sense, as a field, scholars, prestige economy, and that's a term I think I got from Tressie McMillan Cottom, the prestige economy of scholarship, what counts at that tacit, implicit level that people almost never talk about, is still premised in scarcity. It's still premised in a paper economy. It's still premised in a world where to know was what differentiated the scholar from any of the other potential life paths that any of us could have been on. If we are going to actually, A, continue to be funded as a field, particularly in the fraught times in which we live regarding public funding and even private funding around higher education, if we're going to be able to make a value proposition for the work we do to the world, then we need to be able to communicate that outside of our own closed circles. We need to be able to communicate the value of scholarship and continuing to hang on to the prestige economy that we inherited that values the traditional academic publishing system, tenure track jobs that a very, very tiny minority of us will ever have and peer review as we inherited it, we're probably not going to be making that leap into a scholarship for knowledge abundance. And so when I went to look at, at I say Boyer because I'm Canadian, but Boyer um, and his 1990 work on scholarship, you know, he did an, an empirical study of scholarly practice and he found those four pieces, the scholarship of research and discovery. Well, we're all familiar with that. But then he also introduced sort of the scholarship of synthesis or integration, and that was largely interdisciplinary, as I understand it, um, and the scholarship of practice or application, which is much more public. How does this relate to things outside of sort of the, the academic walls or the ivory tower? And then scholarship of teaching. And he built a foundation on which we can consider, and this was 1990, but a foundation on which we can consider all of those outlooks and practices, all of those relationships to the world as scholarship. So what I did as part of my thesis work, first I looked at sort of what are the literacies by which scholars make reputation and build influence in this academic Twitter digital world, um, because I wanted to understand how it lined up against sort of the, the traditional perhaps more scarcity-based models. But then I wanted to look at, okay, so do I see evidence in the ethnography that I did of these scholars, do I see evidence that they are enacting all these things that Boyer calls scholarship? I found a great deal of scholarship of synthesis and integration, cross-disciplinary conversations, like truly cross-disciplinary conversations that aren't starting from separate boundaries of disciplinary understandings, but actually are built in side conversations that may be happening about MOOCs or maybe happening about um, 
higher ed's direction or about the concept of public scholarship itself. And from conversations that emerge on those sites, people get a sense of who each other are and then begin to realize, oh, you're actually a chemist or you're actually an education professor or you're actually a graduate student in the field of sociology. But we may not come into the conversations even from those stances. And there are not a lot of opportunities outside our campuses where we actually get to do that. On our campuses, we tend to have tight enough networks that we already know where people are situated. And we don't tend to go to a ton of cross-disciplinary conferences where you might randomly meet somebody from an entirely different field. So that capacity to be in those kind of mixed conversations, um, for me, was powerful evidence of that Boyer model of synthesis and integration, where we're taking ideas that um, sometimes come from outside our own disciplines and having to make sense with them, or at least butt up against them and consider, okay, the, the worldview behind that may not align with how I understand my world or, or my scholarship. Um, I saw evidence of, of public scholarship. Um, we get a lot of, you know, the New York Times publishes something every year saying scholars need to be more public, but they're really mostly talking about senior white male tenured scholarship scholars, I should say, or that seems to be the David Brooks model of the call because every time that he and others, other columnists like him, publish those calls for public scholarship, a horde of often young, often female, often people of color, scholars out on Twitter go, hey, we're here, like little who's in a Dr. Seuss story, but that never seems to enter the pundit world or the columnist world. So I found in Boyer a way of framing all of the work that's actually been done outside of the academy that is still scholarship and learning and creation of knowledge and sharing of knowledge by these scholars in academic Twitter. I would love to have you take a couple minutes to provide a, a, a definition of networked scholarship for an audience that might not necessarily be familiar with it, and specifically what that looks like. You mentioned you had this window of time in Twitter the, at the dawn of, the, of, of hashtag activism ending at the start of Gamergate and what we look at now, the co-optation. Moreover, more cultural realization of what the platforms are serving, not you know the Wild West of education or, or of... of of social uh, discovery really being co-opted for wielding specific ideological spaces? I haven't been defining that. Um, partly because I'm uncertain now what it means. Where I thought things were moving in 2013, 14, even into 2015, I sense that what seems to have shifted in that conversation are not really people's practices in the sense that I still see a great many network scholars who are out there on Twitter and in other spaces, but Twitter still, I think, remains a core space for people to find each other across geographic distance over areas of interest, be they disciplinary or not. Um, and many of us still remain there, but we are often quieter than we used to be because what we started to see with Stephen Salada and and the rise of Gamergate, and certainly the intersection of those two things, particularly for women scholars, for scholars of color, who began to be subject to actual targeted, and sometimes data-driven, not even with people behind them, 
scans of Twitter looking for particular keywords uh, that are often, you know, the subject of somebody's actual scholarship. So people who talk about intersectionality as, as you know, a theory of identity that includes race and class and gender and ways that those things aren't just sort of cumulative, they, they affect an identity um, and, and that person's experience in, in ways that inform each other. That's a academic concept that's been around since 1989, but now when people talk about it in public in a space like Twitter, they may have bots crawling, um, looking for that kind of signal so that then uh, a whole cadre of people with a particular position that aims to push a view that higher ed is full of wild leftist academics who want to do crazy things, they want to bring that in front of the administration of that particular scholar and create personal risk to them. And they want to bring that in front of a whole army of other Twitter followers, bots and humans, um, to create an outcry. And so that outrage cycle that we are all subject to in media in general over the last number of years, that is you know, part of the manipulated media of our times, that has impacted people's practices and often has made people a little more hesitant to speak honestly or to engage in conversations with people who are not already known to them. Because when you're aware that anything that you say, right, even if you are engaging in a casual, light or friendly way, can be screen captured and taken out of context and used against you, it changes your willingness to speak. When I started my study in 2013, I would say that was probably the peak of kind of open academic Twitter because a lot of us, particularly those of us who, who are not marked bodies, um, who are, are white in, in North America especially or are in the dominant culture in our own countries, could tend to approach other academics and be like, hey, and sort of assume that we were in a front porch um, having conversation. It became really clear in the years following that those publics have collapsed, right? That we are in engaging online. We're not just dealing with context collapse or sort of the, I've addressed my speech to my 10-year-old, but I'm actually in a professional setting. Those are different kinds of speech and different kinds of identity that I might use, but actually collapsed whole publics where I'm trying to speak to an audience that uses one kind of concept and language, and it's being used and pulled and manipulated by people who not only speak another kind of language, but actually have an agenda. And so... We're, we're in strange times, and that affects what it means to do network scholarship, but the premises behind it of it's valuable and important to connect with other people. Sometimes some of us work at small institutions. Some of us don't have a lot of colleagues at our small institutions who are doing the kinds of work or interested in the kinds of things that we're interested in. And so network scholarship is a way to build a community and build a scholarly Community of inquiry is probably the best model that I have around us and the work we do. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us today. You can find Bonnie on Twitter at Bon Stewart, as well as her blog, bonstewart.com. Her most recent work, Academic Twitter and Academic Capital, Collapsing Orality and Literacy in Scholarly Publics, can be found in Routledge's The Digital Academic, Critical Perspectives on Digital Technologies in Higher Education. Thank you for listening to this episode of Edutechnicalities. Our bumper music, No, I Can't Be Happy Here, is courtesy of Austin Myers.
who you can find at ak5a.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our sponsor for this series, the Center for Faculty Scholarship and Development at Seattle Pacific University. Please join us again for other episodes in this special series on rethinking scholarship in the 21st century, as well as the other special topics and themes that make edutechnicalities the unique experiment in audio production that it is. My name is Roland Moe. We look forward to having you again. Goodbye.